Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Yo, 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 or maybe it's ho, ho, ho. Whatever you choose it to be, it's time for a dose of airline chatter. I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us on Airlines Confidential. And Ben Baldanza here as well. We're in the home stretch for 2022. And across the airline and aviation sectors, everyone is focused on ending the year on a positive note. And as we get a chance to look more closely at the industry performance for Thanksgiving, that's looking like a tremendous momentum building travel week for carriers here in the U.S. So, Chris, what are we going to talk about first? Well, we've got two conversations with guests uh, this week. In lieu of some aviation news discussion, we're going to talk to our correspondent, Chris Sloan, who took a trip to Dallas last week to participate in the Southwest Airlines Media Day session. So many of the topics we often talk about, pilot shortages and airline staffing, business travel, aircraft deliveries, they were all covered by Southwest executives. And so we thought we'd visit the news of the week through the eyes of those conversations at Southwest. And then we've got our weekly guest interview with Ann Correa, a partner at global aviation consultancy, MBA Aviation, to talk about airline assets and valuations as the industry recovers from the financial mayhem of the pandemic. Sound like a plan, Ben? It sounds like a great plan and eager to hear what both have to say. And while we're talking about great things, let me thank our great friends at Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities and across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. Well, in place of a news discussion this week, we're going to talk to Chris Sloan about his visit to Southwest Airlines Media Day. That's been a lot of the news coverage about the industry the past uh, week or so, and he was there firsthand and can give us a report. Chris? Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Well, thanks for having me. I I love to be back talking about things that happened near Love Field. Thank you. Well, you were just up the street uh, from the house here, learning about what Southwest has uh, got planned for 2023 and beyond. First, tell us what Media Day is and who was there. Well, Media Day is a day where we really, uh, you know, get a really nice, robust kind of walk through the entire operation by everybody from frontline employees to Bob Jordan, through all the leadership, and it was really a deep dive uh, on Southwest. And for all of us, you know, there's probably 50 people from the media uh, who've been there. There haven't been many of these, if any, since really COVID. So for us, it was like a really, uh, you know, a high school reunion in a sense, a lot of hugging and, well, fist bumping. There's still a little bit of fist bumping and uh, going on. So, you know, it being Southwest, there's always going to be a fun take on it and a lot of history. So I think one of the really cool things that happened is we took a tour through the headquarters and the headquarters at Southwest, you would be forgiven if you didn't think, if you thought that this was an episode of Hoarders Airline Edition. I mean, they have the entire history, uh, everything from chili cook-offs to Halloween costumes to the the first certificates from the CAB and the Texas Interstate uh, Public Service Commission, you know, festooned all over the hallways. I mean, the culture is everywhere and that's so important to them. And one of the really neat things that we saw is they perfectly preserved Colleen uh, Barrett and um, uh, founder Herb Kelleher's offices behind glass at the uh, headquarters. And so you actually, we can go inside and they, the offices are exactly as they left it. They're like shrines. And uh, I mean, they even still smell like uh, cigarette smoke. So it really feels like a uh, 
Herb and Colleen uh, could still be there. So that's that was really fun and, and cool. And then, uh, you know, typical media day, you know, these things can get somewhat stodgy, but not at Southwest. You know, we started the morning with a red carpet arrival with uh, basically Macarena lessons and the ESPN Jock Jam CD with 100 employees with pom-poms uh, cheering us on. So uh, that woke us up really nice. And then we got down to business. Chris, tell us how many was the we? Was this a really well-attended event as I expect it probably was? It was, Ben. I mean, there was about, I'd say, well over 50 of us. Uh, and that, you know, all it was uh, everything from industry trade media to the New York Times and the the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. So um, there was a lot of uh, pent up demand uh, to be there uh, for this event. So it was definitely well covered. So let's have a lightning round on some topics that looks like were discussed. Um, what's what's going on with capacity? Well, Southwest is, uh, you know, like everybody else, you know, had pulled back uh, capacity um, and, you know, and really and pulled back the network. But, uh, you know, they really went to great pains to talk about and admit candidly that, you know, in, in their words, 2021 was just an awful, awful year for them and how poorly um, they performed. And they really went into why that was. But they they really felt that now that they had their sea legs under them and, and spoke a lot to, you know, really the improvement of the operation of where it was just during Thanksgiving. Over that period, they had the 99.7 percent flight completions, 87 percent on time. And the NPS scores were at 72. So they said by pulling back capacity and, uh, you know, and, and making those adjustments because they candidly admit they, they simply in 2021 did not have the ability to fly the schedule that they were able to make improvements. So they talked a lot about uh, how they were bringing capacity and the network back. And I thought the most you know, interesting part about that was they they made a point that at this point, the airline in terms of number of passengers carried and in terms of people and flight flights is actually back to pre-COVID levels and the network itself in terms of ASMs, uh, they expect to be back by the end of 2023 and 90% of it by next summer. But I thought was the most, the interesting kind of color we got behind that was the staffing situation. So, um, you know, obviously there was a huge amount of attrition and uh, furloughs and people leaving during COVID, but so far uh, this year alone, year to date, they've hired 15,700 new staff and you know, 11,000 net after retirements. And the previous record, you know, back in uh, four or five years ago was 8,000. So there's a real focus on getting people. And, you know, and in terms of pilots, you know, they said they, they, their, their point there is, you know, that there's no pilot shortage. There's a pilot training shortage. So we have no trouble hiring, but the constraint is actually the training and uh, 2250 pilots next year. But, I, but the, the most interesting kernel is they candidly admitted, they said, look, you know, this year, as of now, 20% of our workforce has, is new. They've only been hired in the last two years. And by the end of next year, 40% of the workforce will have been hired at COVID. And quite frankly, you know, there's people are, you know, not as proficient, their jobs, they're new, they're still in training, you know, they, there was a, a brain drain there. So the fact is, is that the constraint has been on the staffing situation has really hurt their costs. And that's what's improving into the point of right now, they said they have 40 to 45 aircraft that are parked, essentially, um, that they can't fly. Uh, just because the pilot training isn't there, uh, but yet they expect the aircraft constraint will actually take over from the employee constraints by mid-year. And that's next year is when they really believe they're going to be back at full speed. More with Chris Sloan in a moment. We want to thank Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, for their support of Airlines Confidential. Boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world, Seabury's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. So, Chris, how do they feel that the big Thanksgiving holiday just went? So, Ben, as far as Thanksgiving goes, I mean, they really pointed to the fact that this showed the real improvement as the operation you know, was resuming back to that kind of hallmark reliability that the airline's famous for. Their worst year, they look at and they say 2021, they were averaging 3% of flights uh, being canceled. And uh, on-time arrivals were like at 69%, um, which is pretty poor. Uh, and that's A14. And over the Thanksgiving period, they pointed to 87% of on-time reliability and only three-tenths of 1% of flights canceled. So they felt that that is obviously a huge improvement, uh, you know, over where they were. And they pointed out that the, like, you know, we've all discussed is that the Thanksgiving travel period was really elongated 
And uh, they, though they wouldn't commit to specific days, they said, you know, it really began the Friday before and even the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, which was the day we were having our media event, they were still seeing significant travel and return home. Chris, what did you hear about business travel and their efforts to secure more of that part of the market? They seem to be talking a lot externally about their growth in that space, but anything you saw with regard to how they're specifically targeting business travelers? Yeah, I think that's a really a great question. I mean, they, they're clearly the biggest thing they're doing is they're talking about the fact that they're trying to have the schedule return to the depth that it was in terms of adding back in frequency and connectivity that wasn't there before. Uh, they added uh, 18 new cities during the pandemic, and those were more leisure-driven. So they are buoyant. Uh, they're even more buoyant about the return of business travel um, than, uh, than maybe Gary Kelly was, believing that it's you know, 80, you know, on approaching 70 to 80% back. But they point that you know, they are uh, you know, really appeal to the small and medium-sized managed travel companies that are more likely to come back. And they're heavily investing in, you know, the GDS and the Southwest Biz product to really uh, tap into that uh, market. Um, as far as the business travel, one thing they, you know, you wouldn't expect Southwest to put maybe a huge priority is really upgrading the passenger experience. And a lot of that is the Internet. Uh, they now have two providers and they're essentially retrofitting the entire fleet uh, by the end of uh, third quarter next year. They will have, you know, Viasat and uh, I think the company's Venovo, the new old name for a uh, uh, Global Eagle. And so they really want to upgrade that because they realize that they've, that's been a pain point uh, for business customers when the plane is, quote, dark. And then they're adding USB ports and power, USB A and C. Uh, and that is uh, a project that will begin, the delivery begins with all of the maxes uh, in the middle of next year. And they, uh, and that'll go forward. Uh, they're not retrofitting the old fleet. So business is a, certainly a huge uh, priority of where they're going. They said, actually, the number now I'm looking at, it's a 75, at this point, they're 75% recovered for managed travel. Well, Boeing has had problems delivering the Max. I imagine that must affect Southwest. Did they talk about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, they did talk about that. I mean, they said, you know, obviously, as they, you know, right now, there's a constraint uh, with labor to fly the aircraft. So it's, it's been okay. So they're expecting very few of any Maxes uh, in 2023. But they do believe that the extension will be granted uh, to keep the type commonality, um, but they will be taking Max 8s uh, in place of that. Um, but there is a real need for the Max 7s because that really services those smaller cities and secondary markets, international markets they added uh, to the, um, uh, you know, during the pandemic. So you talked at the top of the conversation about their growth, all their new employees. You know, this is an airline that's always prided themselves on their culture and kind of set the standard. Lots of external commentary about them going through growing pains with regard to being a much bigger company, a different kind of company, and the old Southwest culture isn't there like it used to be. So any anything you picked up on that? So, yeah, I mean, it's a great question because they're really, as the admission that this is a much larger airline um, than it ever was before and with a lot of new talent, the projection was – you know, uh, Bob Jordan said, you know, it's hard to believe, but we're going to wake up in five years. We're going to have 6,000 flights per day, 1,000 aircraft, and just shy of 100,000 employees. So that obviously puts a lot of pressure, you know, on getting staffed. So he freely admits that COVID was mentally draining. There was stress from the cabin, and it really had life impacts. And, you know, it did have an effect on people. So they really are doubling down on returning to that, uh, you know, that kind of that legendary culture. They talked a lot about another, a lot of the new training programs uh, for uh, frontline folks and leadership, and also, you know, really um, spending a lot of time, um, which is something you don't hear Southwest, you know, use a lot, which is there's always been a criticism that the company is not necessarily tech forward, and they have become some tech forward and innovative on the on the commercial side, but not so much the operations side. And the operations side, the belief is that a lot of the new technology tools they're adding, um, you know, will really help empower the employees and make the staff you know, kind of to de-stress things. Um, you know, uh, Bob Jordan quote said, you know, look, we're behind, we've outrun our tools and we owe it to our staff to modernize this operation. I mean, anecdotally, they said just by removing the masks and people can once again see us smile and see us, you know, crack our jokes and have our humor, uh, you know, that's that you're, you're, people are really starting to feel like in the cabin, the old Southwest is back. Well, Chris, as we wrap up, let me ask, Southwest has always 
set a standard for the industry around culture, around fun, around profits, all kinds of things. Did you get a sense in your day there that this is a company that can continue setting trends for the industry or one that's struggling to stay afloat or somewhere in between? Well, I feel like I'm back in Professor Baldenza's class. Um, <laughs> I think there's an admission that, you know, there was a lot of, we just kind of need to get through and fly through what we've been through. And they talked a lot about just how difficult and painful that situation was. And there is an admission that the airline did get behind on, uh, on technology. You know, it was very much just triage, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just technology, but the culture at some points, it was like, we just need to kind of get through this. And, you know, and this, a lot of those touch points, things that, you know, seem seemingly goofy, like the chili cook-offs and the, the parties they have for all their staff, a lot of that, and a lot of things were happening remote that that, frankly, uh, you know, detracted from some of the customer experience. And so they were really trying to, you know, to, to really bring that back. And they're on these dramatic hiring binges, and they realize that it's going to even be more work to try to get, you know, to keep that esprit de corps going together. Um, and what we saw was this kind of glistening new training operations center. And you could see they were making real investments um, to bring that back. Um, and, you know, it'd be very easy in the labor shortages to kind of sacrifice the culture just by going on hiring binges without, uh, and you're thinking at this point, like they'll take anybody, but their point is, look, we know talent's hard to get. So what we're going to do is we're going to have these hiring, uh, basically fairs where we'll make contingent offers to 500 people based on background checks because we don't want to lose them, but they've got to be right. And they still say that, you know, only 30 to 40% of people who actually get one-on-one -on -one interviews actually get an offer there. So they said, you know, we have to be still selective and we'd rather stay uh, delay scaling up if it's going to mean sacrificing that whole Southwest vibe. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming back on the show, telling us about your experience at this great day Southwest had. It's good to see that the industry is back to doing these kind of events, of course, and that goes along with the strong demand we saw this summer and into Thanksgiving. I appreciate it. It was uh, it's a lot of fun hanging with you guys as always. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you soon. Happy holidays if we don't talk before then. Don't go away. We've got more Airlines Confidential coming up, including our discussion with Ann Correa of MBA Aviation. And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're very excited to have with us today Ann Correa, who's the Senior Vice President of Airlines and Airports for MBA Aviation. Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, like all of our guests, we'd like you to start out by introducing yourself and telling us your background and how you got into the position you're in now. Actually, my roots are in aviation. Uh, I was born on an Air Force base in Mekinoc, North Dakota, and really spent you know my whole childhood, my all while growing up, learning about airlines. It took me a minute myself to actually work in the industry, though. When I first started out, I was a management consultant in the automotive industry, and I worked with uh, our clients were were you know going through some of their own kind of challenges in the automotive industry at that time. So it was a really great opportunity for me to learn about operations and 
um, the industry itself. And then after that, I went to go work for a nonprofit consulting company. I've always been in consulting, but bounced around a little bit. So I went to go work for this nonprofit consulting company called Endeavor. And the mission of Endeavor is essentially to support the the growth of a middle class in countries that don't really have one. And they do this by supporting entrepreneurs with business ideas they think are scalable. So I got to work on some really great projects and traveled a lot. I worked in Chile and Egypt. And then after that, that's when I really kind of started working in aviation. I went to go work for UPS in their European headquarters in in Brussels. And our team was responsible for expanding at UPS, they have an internal loyalty program to kind of, you know, motivate employees and to to also be salespeople for them. And so I worked with that program, expanding it throughout the region. It was a hard decision for me to move for, on from UPS, as I'm I really do enjoy anything logistics. But I had this fantastic opportunity to work with Avianca in Bogota on their strategy team, which is really where I kind of, you know, got the most interesting experience actually to work in the airlines itself. So Avianca had just merged with Taka and the economic environment in the region at the time was was really, really good. So our job on the strategy team was, we were focused on, you know, how to grow this company that had just merged. So it was it was a thrilling time to be there. I got to work on a ton of different types of projects we were there during the during the Brazil World Cup, so we got to work on kind of how to plan that operation and the logistics of an operation where, you know, it's just a four-week period. Uh, I got a lot of exposure to airports and innovations in the airports, and then I also got a lot of experience working with the airport authorities, interestingly enough. So I got a lot of exposure while down there. Then after a few years, you know, being in Columbia, my, my family and I decided it was time to move back to Virginia, where I'm from. And I started working for this great little consulting company called Morton Byron Agnew with my dad. And then now I've been here about seven years. So, Anne, if you'll give a little more specificity to, you know, what does MBA do in the aviation space? Who are your clients? So what kind of advice and counsel and strategic guidance do you provide to your clients? Yeah, so we are an aviation consultancy, which basically means, you know, we work with our clients to come up with solutions to their problems or explore opportunities with them to help them achieve their goals. Our client base is pretty, pretty expansive. We work with private equity firms. We work with investors in aviation. Of course, we work with airlines, airports, lessors, manufacturers, really any any type of aviation company. Um, MBA works a lot in the appraisal space, valuations. We're really well known for valuing aircraft and engines, spare parts, and also all of the intangible assets that are included in in the aviation space. We, uh, over the years, have transitioned to be more of a um, data-centered company because that's really what our clients, clients need help kind of analyzing the situation, analyzing their current challenges, um, so we do have an aviation intelligence portal called Redbook um, that a lot of our clients will integrate into their work streams that provide them information on, you know, various trends in the market and definitely any information they would need about their uh, their assets. We also have a few other work streams. We have a team that does asset management and a technical team. They manage assets on behalf of the aviation investors. And then we also have a safety team. We're one of the few IATA certified safety auditors. So we've got auditors all over the globe that go out and perform safety audits on on airlines to make sure that they are are up to code. Well, I bet a lot of our listeners know MBA. So let's dig in a bit. During the pandemic, airlines look for alternative sources of collateral to raise cash. Tell us how this worked for the airlines and did MBA play a role in helping to value any of those intangibles like the loyalty programs? Yeah, definitely. So airlines are, they're used to borrowing against their assets to fund growth. Uh, But traditionally those have been tangible assets like the aircraft, engines and spare parts. Before the pandemic, airline executives were less interested in using their intangible assets as a source of collateral to raise cash. But 
when the pandemic hit, they really just didn't have a choice. The pandemic was really challenging for airlines. Not only were they bleeding cash, but no one knew when the bleeding was going to stop. They needed liquidity and they needed it pretty quickly. Um, so this is this is really when the airlines started thinking about their intangible assets, primarily the loyalty programs, as you mentioned. Um, we saw the um, United come to market with a big bond deal pretty quickly after the pandemic hit. And after that, the other legacy carriers followed. Um, even the low cost carriers were able to mortgage parts of their their loyalty programs through different uh, financing opportunities. The reason for that, that they are such valuable assets is because the, the programs are really profitable. They're built around credit card agreements that they have with banks that, and those banks buy the points from the airline and then give those points to the customers. Then the customers redeem those points for airfare or retail purchases. You know, and these programs, they can have hundreds of partners that will incentivize customers to keep earning and using their credit cards. So it's really a, a win-win situation for the airline and also for the banks. Um, over time, these programs have evolved so that customers don't even really have to fly to earn points, and they've got lots of options of where to spend their points that don't even include travel. So the programs keep expanding their ecosystems of partnerships, and it just becomes really a, a more successful source of revenue. And of course, in harmony with the credit card agreements is the data collected on the consumer, which ultimately helps the airline and its partners to sell better to, to everyone. I say all of that just to really give context on why these programs are so valuable for the airlines. So MBA, you know, we were you know, heavily involved with all of our clients working to make sure that they understood the value of their programs and work with them to speak with the different aviation investors so they also understood not only the value of the programs, but the the growth possible and the risks associated with any sort of intangible. More Airlines Confidential in a moment, thanks to Aerodata. If you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. So, and the pandemic also really impacted aircraft values, as you know, uh, better than Ben and I, but whether it be wide bodies that had nowhere to fly, regional fleet that had nowhere to fly, what did we see over the last couple of years and where is the, the market right now with regard to aircraft values and, and fleet values? And how is that going to, you think, impact specifically the regional industry? Yeah, this is a really good question, Chris. The values of the different aircraft were certainly hit throughout the pandemic. How much of an impact we saw really depended on the aircraft type and to a certain extent, you know, the age or whether or not it was new or old technology. The wide body values, they were certainly hit the hardest, uh, though the situation was, you know, the pandemic was highly unusual. The value outcome wasn't entirely unexpected. We saw with large out of production wide body aircraft take between 40 and 70 percent value hit, which is for the most part in line with, you know, how we've how we've seen values behave in historical downturns before based on the whatever the supply and demand situation is at the time. We saw this with the 7er, the A380s, and certainly the A330-300s. Um, some of those values were propped up more than we would have otherwise seen because of cash injections by governments, um, but not entirely unexpected values. One of the surprising value trends that we did see that we hadn't really expected was with the new technology wide body aircraft. The 787s, the A350s, the A33900s. So historically in the young new tech wide body space, the values are pretty stable because those aircraft are owned by top tier credits or by airlines that are flag carriers. But because leading up to the pandemic, the leasing community had kind of expanded the market for new tech wide bodies to operators that, that weren't, weren't the classic operators. And instead, you know, offered these aircraft to some some riskier credits that, you know, had the opportunity to afford the aircraft because of financing opportunities. And this did result in about a 10% value hit 
which is more than what we would have seen historically. The good news is for the new tech wide body is that while the values did take a hit, you know, we expect it to be short term and for values to fully recover. The narrow bodies, on the other hand, you know, they've got a, a very different story, primarily because there are a lot more of these aircraft, but also because they are there are significantly more op- operators and opportunities to place those aircraft. And the narrow bodies also benefited from domestic traffic in major markets, uh, making a faster recovery, keeping those values more stable. And then also the, the narrow bodies have more opportunities later in life. There's not only demand for, for narrow bodies as passenger aircraft, but also as freighter aircraft conversions. They're very popular. Uh, and then also to be parted out and used as spares for an existing fleet. And then finally, you know, the, the regional market, you know, they had some of the same benefits that the narrow bodies did in the sense that the domestic markets recovered faster, uh, really, you know, benefiting the regionals, the regional space, since that's where they operate primarily. So the regional values really haven't changed. They did take a hit when the passenger demand went down, but they came back relatively quickly uh, when, with the domestic travel. And in addition, you don't really have the oversupply in the regional market simply because there isn't new technology aircraft being produced to push the values down on the older aircraft. Um, so the lack of new tech aircraft and, and the current scope clauses, that really keeps the regional market uh, relatively stable. Very interesting. And let's go and talk about airport slots. Obviously, there's only a few slotted airports in the U.S., but around the world, lots of airports have slot controls. In addition to valuing slots, do you also help airlines sort of maintain a current value of these slots on their balance sheet, given how they might change over time? Then we don't we don't do that. <laughs> the way you phrase the question, we don't help them maintain the value. But you keep values yourself of slots, and you will give airlines guidance on that, right? Yes, we value their slot portfolios. And around the world, have you seen much change in this? Maybe even increasing as a result of the pandemic with the most congested airports sort of still having the most valuable real estate? Yeah, so one of the major characteristics of the intangibles in in aviation, particularly the slots, is that they are long-term strategic assets and they tend to not see the same volatility that the other assets will see. So one of the reasons why investors are so comfortable using slots as collateral from the different airlines is because we have you know, decades of transaction data that prove slots only become more valuable with time. And a big driver for this is because by definition, a slot controlled airport is one where the demand is higher than the supply. And that's typically not going to change, particularly for the the majority of the slot controlled airports are in Europe and they just don't have the space to increase the size of an airport or to really, you know, push out too much further to regional airports for the high density traffic opportunities. So we see that not only are slot values increasing, but we also see that at the slot controlled airports, the airports can't increase the number of slots, but they can increase the throughput. And they do that by upgaging their aircraft or, um, you know, pushing out the hours slightly to to increase the traffic that can go in and out. We don't really see any sort of decline in values, even in a pandemic. And let me follow up on the slot conversation. If Santa Claus came to you and said, Anne, you've been a good little girl this year, you can have 50 slots under your tree, what airport would you like those slots to be at? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I guess the obvious answer would be London Heathrow. You know, they are the, the most valuable slots on a per slot basis in the world, I believe. But we're really talking about 
in a jurisdiction and that allows you to trade them. In jurisdictions that don't allow you to trade them, then it would be a purely strategic play. Okay. Well, um, I think it's fascinating that London Heathrow <laughs> still holds the cachet, even with so much of the traffic moving away from Heathrow over the past decade with Middle East carriers and their networks and other kinds of things. London Heathrow is still a place to be if you want to be a slot holder. Number two, I'd say LaGuardia, but you might not agree with me. I definitely would say LaGuardia, but I was trying to think of one in a jurisdiction that doesn't allow trading. Maybe uh, Haneda? Yeah, I mean, Haneda is a really great option. And because you work with airlines around the world, you must have a view of how airlines around the world are recovering from the last couple of years. Can you sort of take us around the world quickly and tell us the status of airline recovery from your point of view? Yeah, definitely. So the good news headline, of course, is that air travel demand has been really robust Uh, So thankfully, the airlines have all had that in their favor. Uh, People are eager to fly and catch up on, you know, all the traveling they weren't able to do during the pandemic. However, you know, there is still the backdrop of serious headwinds and and economic uncertainty. I'll start with North America because I think that that one's kind of the, you know, the, the most clear. We've seen really strong recovery in traffic and capacity in the domestic space. And then as far as internationally for North America, Central America and Caribbean markets, they recovered very quickly. For those that were willing to travel during the pandemic, they they went there. Caribbean had very few restrictions. Um, there was a lot of capacity to go and um, people in North America were willing to travel. While Europe did take longer to to open up, it it has almost entirely recovered. Trans-Pacific International is is still the outlier. It's it's really lagging. Europe overall has had a strong domestic recovery, but has faced staffing shortages and capacity caps uh, due to those shortages. And then also some areas are implementing caps for environmental reasons. So that'll be something that they'll have to kind of contend with in the long term. Latin America, they are improving and they've certainly benefited from the U.S. recovery, but traffic is still well below 2019 levels. Kind of the shining star of the continent is Brazil. Their domestic travel has almost fully recovered. Moving back to East Africa has seen a steady recovery, but they're still well below 2019. And then the lagger is Asia Pacific. You know, they are expected to post the highest losses, and they've just had restrictions continuing to affect traffic recovery. While domestic travel you know, has, has seen an uplift, the international recovery remains quite weak. So, Anne, we've talked about loyalty programs, airplanes, and slots. What are the other kind of core assets that airlines uh, control and bank on and you help uh, create and assess value? Yeah, so, I mean, all airlines have intangibles. They don't all necessarily have the really large value intangibles like like we see with the loyalty programs, um, but they still need to fund growth and they need to find, you know, financial band-aids in, in the time of crisis. So those carriers, they have a couple different options. Every carrier, by definition, has an operating certificate. Uh, those operating certificates, they have value and they're, they've actually been traded in the market, in the open market. So there are data points and transactions that, that we can look to for that asset type. Another would be any contract that any contract is an intangible asset. We obviously know that the credit card contracts are really lucrative, but there are also a couple different con- other contracts that carriers can look at the capacity purchase agreements, for example, or the contract a passenger airline has with a cargo company to move cargo goods. Uh, Those have intangible value. Another intangible every airline has is their intellectual property. This would include brands, trademarks, or any proprietary in-house software or algorithms that give them an edge over the competition. You're less likely to see any of these collateral types used in the capital markets, like the loyalty program, but they're great tools for bank loans or private placement. 
And then one thing that we didn't touch on that is really the most traditional of the aviation intangibles, and that is the bilateral agreement. So before open skies, pretty much all routes were assigned to a specific operator. This was both domestic and international. Most of these designations have, have long since gone away, but there still exist bilateral agreements in some parts of the world. The best example is the bilateral agreement between the U.S. and Japan. In this agreement, it states you know, which airline can fly between which U.S. city and which Japanese city. Changing any of these designations would require government inter intervention. So any airline that still holds these routes defined in a bilateral agreement possess a very valuable intangible. That's really fascinating to think about all these intangible assets and how they can be used both in a banking environment and just for an airline to assess its own enterprise value. Back to the entire MBA business, how do you see the next five to 10 years as what's most important for the industry that you guys can help support? Seems like you're doing some very important things for the industry. Well, thanks. I like that you think that. The next few years really depends on you know, what the airlines and the aviation investors will require. You know, the valuation business for us grew significantly over the last three years because there was such strong demand for liquidity. You know, going forward, we would fully expect operating models and balance sheets to be tested and, and likely some airlines you know, won't survive. So here we would expect that you know, in the short term there, there might be work in restructuring and financial management. Um, you know, as we, as we do transition to more of a recessionary environment, we would expect a higher growth in more of our technical and advisory side as the investors are looking to take advantage of different opportunities or reposition their investments. But our industry is, is very cyclical. So after bad times come the good times. So we expect airlines and aviation investors will continue to look for ways to grow and innovate. And we just look forward to always going along for the ride with them. Well, Anna, somebody who's old enough to remember Mort Beyer, um, it's <laughs> great to see that his legacy continues with MBA and all the intelligence they provide the industry. So this has been a great conversation, and uh, we appreciate your spending some time with us today. Great. Thank you. This was my pleasure. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Thanks again to Anne. And now we want to take some listener questions before we go. Please send your comments and questions via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Chris, Colin from Massachusetts sent a note about our discussion with Steve Schur from Hertz about their electric vehicle initiative. Hey guys, I wish Steve Schur from Hertz gave us an example of the cost to rent an EV compared to a similar size gas-powered car to strengthen Hertz case for people to rent EVs. If I heard him correctly, customers do not have to pay to recharge the electric car that they rent. I did the comparison for a three-day rental in Orlando. The total cost for a Tesla Model 3 is $161.07, and a similar standard size gas-powered car is $144.70. I estimated that people would drive 150 miles during the three days, which would cost another $20 or so in gas. So the total real cost for the standard size gas-powered car is $164.70, which is more expensive than the EV option. This is the type of information Hertz needs to tell their customers if they truly want them to rent EVs instead of gas-powered cars. Thanks. I like this idea, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, I do too, uh, Colin. Thanks for writing in. Um, you know, I think that Hertz is still getting its sea legs uh, with regard to how they're going to be marketing and promoting EVs to their customers. As we kind of talked about in the interview, I think a lot of this is going to be driven by corporate accounts that are going to be pushing their 
employees to rent uh, EVs, but still the the leisure traveler should have some incentive too. You know, I don't know if it's always going to be cheaper. It's going to probably depend on the station and the how many EVs are available and the popularity of them. But certainly when it's favorable and under the current pricing structure, there ought to be a pop-up or some comparison or some kind of encouragement to rent the EV. And, you know, with their loyalty programs and things, there are probably some other ways to incent customers with some extra frequent flyer miles or extra miles in the Hertz frequent rental program. So I think you'll probably be seeing them do more things as they get the EVs in the fleet and and look for more ways to incentivize their customers to uh, make the decision to rent an EV. Ben, what do you think? You know, I liked all those ideas, Chris. A couple more thoughts on this. While I like the analysis that Colin did, it obviously can make a difference based on how far people drive with either car in terms of how much gas I'll have to put in and how that could change things. But what I really like is the point that the cost of the two in his analysis were so close. So while Hertz doesn't have to say it's less expensive to buy the EV, they could talk about it, you know, virtually the same cost or at similar kind of cost. The other thing is they could even encourage people who aren't on corporate programs that encourage them to use the EV with messaging like, why not try out an EV before you think about buying one or haven't driven an EV yet? Use this as a chance to see what everybody's talking about and things like that. Ben, we also had two listeners, both from Dallas, by the way, right in with comparable comments about where you landed in the Barry Biffle versus Scott Kirby debate about the outlook for ultra low cost carriers. Both Dave and Thomas see merit in Scott's point of view that the cost advantages of ULCCs eventually erode unless they scale like a Southwest or a Ryanair, which of course points to Frontier's failed acquisition of Spirit and their inability to scale quickly. And they also cited both the Spirit and Allegiant Q3 losses as another indication of some chinks in the uh, ultra-low-cost carrier business model. So, Ben, are you going to dig in on your point of view, or have you had a chance to reflect on this topic since we first discussed it earlier this fall? Yeah, I'll dig in. I think both Dave and Thomas, not Dave Thomas, the windy guy, but (laughs) Dave and Thomas, have a good point, although there are lots of reasons I think that Spirit and Allegiant lost money. I don't think it's just because ULCs maybe have lost some advantage of things. Both airlines, we talked about Allegiant before being highly focused in certain geographies that may have had an effect, other things related to fleet costs and things. And in Spirit's case, they built up a lot of capacity more quickly than other airlines. That in the short term, looked like it wasn't necessarily the smartest decision. I guess my point is, it's going to take time before we can really say whether the cost advantage of the ULCCs really erodes versus the big guys. I still think their density advantage, meaning more seats per plane, labor advantage in terms of not necessarily rate they pay, but a more junior workforce and a generally younger fleet, not always, but generally younger fleet, all those things still bode really well for the ULCCs. So while Dave and Thomas made a very good point about this quarter, I think we should look as we get into 2023, maybe even through the third quarter or so before we can reach a conclusion about this point. But as of now, I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm sure they're going to stick to theirs. Yeah. I mean, what's funny about all this is historically it's the growing too fast or growing in ways that aren't core to the business model that have often tripped up upstarts and new entrants and some low cost carriers who try to move into wide body travel or international or whatever else. So, um, 
I see their point with regard to at some point as they get big, they lose that advantage. Uh, but they've, they're going to get big if they're going to succeed and grow and meet shareholder demands for ROI as well. So let's, as we keep saying, let's watch the space, but I don't think they're going any, anywhere anytime soon. Uh, but I think it's an interesting debate. Well, thanks, Chris. So my shout out this week goes to American Airlines, who is phasing out its corporate AirPass program. AirPass is a program that for a fixed price lets you fly, you know, an unlimited amount of times, maybe with some restrictions and so. But programs like this, and I'll say it's almost the same with Frontier's new program, I think just have so much adverse selection with them, meaning that the people you don't want to buy them are the ones most likely to buy them. And in the corporate space, this seems to be a double problem with this. So my shout out goes to American for recognizing this probably isn't the smartest thing they've done, especially as they're figuring out what businesses are traveling or not. It's time to phase out those kind of pay one price and fly for a long time programs. I have to be honest, when I saw that announcement last week, I thought AirPass had been eliminated a while ago. So that shows how sometimes I'm not paying attention. But um, Well, I think you were, though, Chris, because I think the program they eliminated earlier that we talked about was the consumer-based program, not the corporate program. But I could be wrong about no, that. I think you're right now that you said that. Um, well, my shout out is to EasyJet and Rolls-Royce, who reported the first successful run of a hydrogen-powered aircraft engine at a facility in Scotland last week with hydrogen fuel generated by tidal and wind power. So amazing stuff going on. We got to go fast. There's a lot of uh, pressure on aviation to meet their emissions targets. And so things like this uh, make a big difference. So good to hear. That's a great shout out. I agree with you. It's terrific they did this. This is something we're probably going to talk about into 2023 and beyond maybe. Hydrogen is a piece of the future for sustainable aviation. I still think, Chris, one of the biggest issues of hydrogen is not making an airplane that can use it, but finding a way to transport and store and fuel the airplanes in a safe environment. I mean, the joke I have with my son is, what's the first word you think of if I say hydrogen? And he always says bomb. So the storage and safe storage and delivery of the hydrogen is one of the long poles in the tent of getting to this, but we need to have the planes that work too. So that's a great shout out. Well, another week, another Airlines Confidential in the can. Thanks for listening, team, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. And thanks for both Chris Sloan and Ann Correa for great insights. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.